time to talk with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, here on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Uh, good to be here. It's a really interesting week because I know that you have helped us understand in the past matters such as the Zora case dealt with by the Supreme Court of Canada, as well as changes to the criminal code that were brought forth in Bill C-75 to do with bail and release conditions. And those figure prominently into a report on repeat offending and random stranger violence that I know has been part of a raucous debate in the B.C. legislature. And I know you have some thoughts on it as well. I do, and given that I'm uh, not running for anything and uh, not trying to score <laughs> points in the legislature, yep. I might be able to make some sense of it. Uh, and it's work that I'm involved with on a daily basis professionally, of course, so I do have some insight into it. Yeah, um, it's a The report's entitled, A Rapid Investigation into Repeat Offending and Random Stranger Violence in British Columbia. Uh, and it was ordered by uh, Mr. Eby when he was the uh, uh, AG, uh, and... <laughs> Perhaps part of the motivation would be it kicked that issue down the field for about uh, three months. And so the report came out, and I think as you made a point of noting, the report got released on, I think, a Saturday. Yes. <laughs> so not not a whole lot of attention being drawn to it. But there are some really good and interesting points in the report that I think really do deserve to be um, uh, discussed, uh, despite the short timeline. Um uh, the uh, report runs over 150 pages and then has a very interesting um, uh, amendment uh, to the end of it or uh, appendix to the end of it, which were the uh, submissions made by the BC First Nations Justice Council that take, I think, some issue with the report itself. So it's also really notable that the government saw fit to release uh, those submissions along with the main report. Now, I should say, when the report was ordered, I think there was some, uh, in some quarters, concern that the uh, people being asked to author it were a retired police officer and an academic, whether yes. that would produce a completely balanced uh, outcome. Uh, but I think uh, it's fair to say they consulted quite widely. They, they acknowledged they uh, didn't uh, have time or a mandate to consult with all of the First Nations groups that should have been consulted with. Mm. But with that caveat, there's a lot in here. Uh, and I think it does provide some insight into what on earth is going on uh, in some of the municipalities like Victoria, where the candidates aren't holding up awards at the uh, uh, <laughs> debate about all the wonderful things that have occurred um, because of some of these challenges. Mm. Um, and the one of the core things that the authors of this report point out when they're talking about the origin of some of the the problems which are, are real and exist in yes. places uh, all across the province, including uh, Victoria and Vancouver and elsewhere, is that uh, for some categories of offenses, there has been uh, a statistical increase in the number uh, of offenses being reported. Um, one of the statistics the authors provided was that in uh, Vancouver, between 2019 and 2021, 2020, there was a 35% increase in the number of what were described as sort of assaults by strangers. And so there is an increase in that and a notable one. Um, and the um, background, which the authors point out, I think is really important for people to know uh, and to have some context into uh, some of the numbers and statistics. One of the things which was the origin of the uh, challenges that are being dealt with in terms of social disorder, property crime, uh, and assaults by people who are 
cleanly, profoundly mentally ill and obviously or often uh, drug addicted, yeah. um, is how we deal with mentally ill people in BC. Yes. And the authors of the report point out that we used to deal with people who were profoundly mentally ill by putting them in an institution uh, involuntarily. Uh, and the principal one in British Columbia was called Riverview Hospital. It was in Coquitlam. It opened in 1913, and it only closed in 2012. And by 1956, there were 4,300 patients who were held there at Riverview Hospital. Uh, by the early 90s, that had been reduced down to about 1,000. But a substantial number of people, and remember back in 1956, this was a much smaller province. That's a lot of people. To give you some context for that, because context is always important, what do you make of a figure like 4,300 people? Yes. Currently in British Columbia, uh, well, in 2021, the average number of people we had in the 10 provincial jails all across the province was 2,400. Wow. So double the average population in the jails was institutionalized a couple of decades ago. Those cases or similar cases, the question being, where are they now? Correct. Many of them are in jail. Um, and the other statistic the authors point out is that 75% of those people, right, that's those people in jail, the average uh, 2,400 people in B.C. in provincial jails, yeah. 75% of them have either a mental health difficulty uh, or a substance abuse disorder, 75%. Many of them have both, Yeah. okay? So that's who's in jail. And to give some context to that number, so we have used to have, back in the 1950s, 4,300 people with mental health challenges in a secure facility. That's gone. They closed it. They yeah. were all released. The promise was that there would be help in the community. The problem is that didn't come. I see. It hasn't come because it's expensive. Yeah. Now, to give some context to that number of people we currently have in jail, right, in 2021 as well, the number of people that died of drug overdoses in B.C. was 2,224, wow. roughly the same number of people we have in prison yeah. uh, in B.C. Now, it's, of course, very difficult to extrapolate from that how many people are opioid addicted, right? Um, or, you know, in that, but if you have a number, the number of people dying of drug overdoses is roughly the equivalent of our prison population every year mm -hmm. now, and the number is going up. Um, and so you need to try to extrapolate from that. How many people are we dealing with in this category that have profound mental illnesses and now often drug addiction and often interrelated, right? We had in the 1950s 4,300 people who we de deemed necessary to keep in a uh, mental health hospital in Coquitlam. Now that's gone. Yeah. Uh, and the authors of the report point out that and this is really telling and I think really important for people to know when they're assessing what on earth is going on here and what can we do about it, um, is that the majority of the suspects in the you know, part of this report was dealing with these random attacks for no reason by strangers on the street, right? Obviously very troubling. Yes. The authors of the report point out that the a majority of the suspects in those um, attacks, and of course we haven't caught all of them, but a majority of them, had previously been apprehended under the Mental Health Act. So just think about that. A majority of the people apprehended had previously been apprehended under the Mental Health Act that were the suspects in those random assaults of people. Now, the Mental Health Act, which we currently have, um, allows people who are um, determined to be a danger to themselves or to others to be involuntarily kept 
for treatment. But the challenge, of course, is that put yourself in the position of the doctor who's charged with dealing with the person. Yes. You're working at the Jubilee Hospital. person's presented to you with uh, serious mental health problems. Your task, doctor, uh, is going to be to try to predict, is this going to be the person who's going to engage in some random act of violence at some point in the foreseeable future? Good luck. Yeah, I was just going to say that's not what they teach in medical school, at least not to my knowledge. Pretty, pretty tough, right? Uh, You know, and and there's a shortage of capacity to treat people. Um, And the authors point that out as well. The frustration that the, you know, they consulted widely with um, police officers and others that were in the system. And part of the feedback they got was how frustrating it is for police and others uh, who are uh, dealing with people because at the end of the day, the police are sort of the, there's nowhere else to go, right? We download problems onto our police force, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the problem might be mental health, but um, who, who are you going to call when the person is, you know, in the middle of the street screaming or, you know, <laughs> waving a weapon around the police, yes. right? So they're the ones who, who wind up being called there. Um, and the police provided to the authors of the report, they described it as how frustrating it was that when the police were called to deal with people, that there was just nowhere for them to go to get detox and treatment uh, and how unsatisfactory it was that to get into something like that, it could be weeks or months of a waiting list, right? So you're a constable so-and-so who gets called to the person in profound distress. You're concerned about them. They're obviously dealing with a drug addiction and you're left with nowhere to take them. Uh, and so one of the, I think, very good recommendations, along with many that have lots of merit in this report, um, was the idea of establishing uh, places where uh, a person could be taken for immediate treatment and assistance with, for example, drug addiction yes. uh, without having to line up and wait. Um, and that's an excellent idea, right? Having that available either for somebody to simply go there themselves and say, look, I need help, if they have that capacity to, you know, realize where they're at, or for a police or ambulance uh, to take somebody for help. I mean, no kidding. They talk, the authors talk about how frustrating that would be. Imagine yourself as the police officer with that person. What am I going to do? Uh, And uh, as well, the authors recommended that there be, it sounds like sort of a, longer-term increase in mental health um, uh, facilities along the lines of the current scheme we have that allows people to be uh, required to accept treatment if they're deemed to be a danger to themselves or others. Um, And they use some different language for what we might call that. Uh, But it it seems to me that that just has lots of merit. Many of these suggestions have lots of merit. The challenge really here is one of resourcing money. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah. Like when you when you look at this report, and you know, one of those one of the early first important recommendations is that idea of having a a place where the police can or ambulance or individual can go to immediately get um, assistance. Clearly, we should have that, right? Yeah. I mean, anyone who's driven or walked down Pandora. Avenue in Victoria is going to immediately realize there is a profound need um, for that, right? Um, And we clearly need that. Uh, And as well, it's clear that some of the other recommendations, including 
that one of sort of a, and they talked about sort of a low security, sort of long term mental health facility. It sounds a little bit like Riverview. Maybe it does. Yep. Again, yep. Right? Yep. I thought the same thing uh, reading it. Exactly. I totally agree. And, and maybe that's where we're at, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe that is something that we need. Certainly, it's clear that we need additional resources in some form. It's not satisfactory to just release people who have mental illness and drug addiction into the community because the daily pattern of somebody who's in that position is going to be daily constant criminal activity in order to get money to buy drugs. That is the only way that can happen. In our current model where we have consumption sites but drugs not provided, somebody who's the opioid addict will spend every waking moment breaking into cars and shoplifting things to get money to buy drugs. That's just what they're going to do. And if we don't address that, either by getting them treatment so they're going to stop using the opioids or some people say provide safe drugs or something, right, or or have the people in a facility like a re, you know, reinvigorated version of Riverview or something like this, this is just going to keep occurring. Uh, and I think the current AG took some heat in the legislature the other day saying, well, we can't arrest our way out of this. Yes. Um, and maybe that isn't a politic thing to say, but it's true. It depends on what out means. But yes, I, I, I hear you. Yeah. And the authors of this report, right, the police officer, the academic, or retired police officer, uh, they agree with that. Uh, they come to the conclusion that, well, you might make a, I think the language was small impact if you had many more people um, sentenced to longer periods of time in jail, for the obvious reason, right? If you're sitting in jail, you can't be stealing cheese. Yes. Right? <laughs> you just can't be, right? No. Uh, and, and you can't, uh, if we take all of these people who have the thousands of people who have mental illness, and I should say the authors are keen to point out being mentally ill does not equate violence. In no. fact, people who are mentally ill are more likely to be the victim of violence, and most people who have mental illness will never do anything wrong at all. Indeed. But... You know, some people do, uh, and so uh, if the uh, they, they authors conclude that, well, you might have some small uh, impact uh, by doing that, it's clearly impossible. Just consider the numbers of people that we are dealing with, right? Um, how many times of the uh, current prison population and how many prisons are you going to have to house all these people? Uh, that's not going to work. Uh, and, and when you take a, and the authors agree, and, and when you take somebody who's the mentally ill person with a drug addiction and you put them in a provincial jail for a period of time, what pops out after a number of months or years or however long you want to keep them in there is a person with a mental illness and a drug addiction. They're yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> that really hasn't achieved it. No. Um, and so there are some very good ideas. Maybe after the break, we could talk about yeah, yeah. additional suggestions here. Um and the key theme is we need more if we want to have less of these things like uh, repeated uh, crime and uh, people being attacked. There are solutions. They just cost money. All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll continue with Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I was very interested to hear his thoughts on the report released by the government of British Columbia. We're also going to play some clips from Question Period yesterday when this matter came up again. But that's later on next hour. All coming up on CFAX. 
We return to Legally Speaking now with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It was a raucous day again in the B.C. legislature yesterday. Uh, Acting Attorney General Murray Rankin fielding some questions. The Solicitor General and Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth also jumping in. We'll play some excerpts of that later on in the program. But, Michael, we're interested in your analysis and insight on this because, one, as you mentioned, you serve as criminal defense counsel, so you know this system extremely well as your profession. And, two... I think that this report, Michael, goes a long way into answering a lot of the otherwise unanswered questions that many of us had occurred to ourselves earlier in the pandemic. In hindsight, a lot of it makes sense. We had thousands of individuals, all else equal, who a decade or two ago would have been institutionalized, who were not. The alternate supports that were initially promised or at least implied were not delivered. COVID hits. You have provincial jails less likely to have people remanded in custody pre-trial. You have charges themselves less likely to go forward for elements such as breach. You have the police already strained. Everyone's scared inside their houses. It was a bubbling cauldron for public disorder in hindsight. Yeah, I think you're right in, in many respects. Um, now, I, I'm not sure the bail is really the source of the problem, and I think the authors ultimately come to that conclusion. They talk about, you know, the reason uh, bail decisions are made and so forth, but yeah. it's absolutely clear Right. When you have now, if you sort of move the 4,500 people who we kept in custody yep. for mental health problems, 1950s, flash yep. that forward to 2022, mm-hmm. what's that number going to look like? It's going to be enormous. Yeah. Right. Uh, and the solution is clearly not wait for the mentally ill, drug addicted person to steal cheese and then try to get them detained in a provincial jail for a few weeks. That doesn't solve anything. Um it might feel satisfying, right? To sort of, well, I got that person who keeps stealing cheese and coins and breaking into cars. I got them. Mm. Um, and, of course, I can appreciate the frustration. If you're the uh, constable yeah. who's being called to deal with something, I appreciate the idea that you want to immediately do something. Who, who wouldn't want to do something, right? Yeah. And that's reflected in the report, too, right? Uh, but how much better would it be if the frustrated police officer who catches the drug-addicted person with profound mental illness, they're not left with the alternatives of send them, try to send them to jail for a few weeks, right? Not likely to be much of a long-term solution. Or bring them to some immediate, they refer to them as crisis response and stabilization centers. That's what they're proposing. A yeah. place where police, ambulance, or a person could immediately go and say, look, this person is in the middle of a profound crisis. They need help. They need to detoxify. They need help now. Not, I'm going to get on a list and three months from now a bed might come up. That's an excellent idea, right? The, and the underlying problem is not bail. That's just not it. Uh, we don't have the capacity. It won't work, and that's not the solution to the problem. And the authors agree. That's not what we need to do. Um, another idea, which I think must have been floated by mayors or somebody, it's pretty hard to imagine how anyone in the system were, with any experience would have thought this was a solution, but uh-huh. it was in the terms of reference, so the authors spent a fair bit of time dealing with it. Somebody had the idea that the solution to this uh, problem was electronic monitoring bracelets. <laughs> I saw that, uh, and, I, and I thank you. I was going to ask you about that. Is that practical? Absolutely not. All right, I didn't <laughs> think so. It's just ridiculous. They're useful. We use them, and the authors point that out when the objective is, for example, make sure a person isn't going to a particular place, like to protect a, a complainant or yes. 
uh, make sure they're not going to flee the province like the uh, Huawei chief that we had in custody for a period of time. Yeah, they've got their place. But what are we doing? Are we putting electronic monitoring bracelets on thousands of mentally ill people with drug addictions? Mm-hmm. I have this sort of vision of who don't have a home often. After I have this vision of some police officer sitting at a Google screen watching a bunch of little dots swarm around the city. <laughs> what are you going to do with this? What, what you, how okay, I can see it. Right. Yeah, all right, you've the made your case. I've gone to 7-Eleven. Okay, <laughs> well, what am I supposed to do with that information? Nothing. Now, the other thing that's really important that I mentioned at the outset, and it may explain why this report got released the way it did, yeah. is the BC First Nations Justice Council made a very detailed submission as part of the process and take a very different view yeah. uh, of the problem. And the authors, I think, are sensitive to that. And they point out that they didn't adequately consult with First Nations when preparing this report. And the First Nations Justice Council, um, you know, for example, part of their insight is that, uh, you know, we, we need to take into account all of the background that goes into the massive overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system. Uh, and in their view, uh, stigmatizing people by calling them a prolific offender is yeah. not helpful. They point out, I mean, some of the stats I'm familiar with, like the percentage of people in prison who are Indigenous compared to the, that in the general public, right? It's something like 5% of the population is Indigenous, and we've got like 30% of the people in prison are Indigenous. That doesn't line up. One of the other statistics they provide that I hadn't heard before was they talk about the number of Indigenous people that have been shot by the police. Hmm. They point out that... Um, uh, the analysis found that 1.5 out of every 100,000 Indigenous people has been shot by the police wow. since, 27, since 2017, huh. uh, compared to 0.13 of every 100,000 white Canadians. Hmm. Uh, think about that. Yeah, it's um, like a factor of 10. Wow. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, well, that's really remarkable. Yeah, and it's 10 times, they say, the uh, likelihood of an Indigenous person being shot and killed by the police. Now, that's not to say that the police have engaged in improper conduct. It it may be, right, that because of all of the systemic factors that they point out, right, you've got lots of Indigenous people who have really profound challenges, right? Um, And so... um, That's all the time we have for today, Michael, but thank you. Okay. Very good. Thank you so much. Really important report, and I I hope it does get uh, careful consideration. Absolutely. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070, Legally Speaking.